You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. In early September 2004, Mazur Mahmoud got an alarming phone call. The man on the other end of the line was a confidential informant, known in the record only as Mr. B. According to Mahmoud, Mr. B worked in the chemical industry, and he had recently been approached by a group of people who were looking to score a rare, expensive, and highly secret material. They had a buyer, an unnamed Saudi connected, Mahmoud said, to Al-Qaeda. The man wanted the material in order to build a radiological bomb, which would then be used in a terrorist attack against London. Mr. B said he had approached the authorities with this information, but they hadn't been interested, which had led him, as naturally and inevitably as sparrows to Capistrano, to Mazar Mahmoud. Mazar Mahmoud knew just what to do. He gathered some cameras, some microphones, donned a costume, and began arranging a meeting with the three men Mr. B had told him about. Mazar Mahmoud was an investigative journalist for the Rupert Murdoch-owned British tabloid The News of the World. He was known, in the journalism world, as the fake chic, because that is what he often posed as. Over the years, Mahmoud had broken a lot of big stories this way. He'd exposed actors, athletes, and nobles selling drugs, British royals talking smack, and had gotten a couple of high-ranking officials for Newcastle United Football Club fired after catching them on tape drunk at a Spanish bar making horrifically misogynistic comments. Over the course of his career, Mahmoud is said to have contributed to the convictions of some 200 people. To protect his work, News of the World declined to publish his photo in their pages, and even sued a few other outlets, the BBC, The Guardian, The Times of London, when they tried to. He was a serious journalist, the perfect guy to foil a terrorist plot. After an initial meeting at a coffee shop, Mahmoud got on the line with his contacts at Scotland Yard and arranged for a bust. When the three conspirators arrived at a West London Holiday Inn days later, the snare was tripped. Law enforcement stormed in and arrested them. On September 26, 2004, the story was sprayed across the front page of the News of the World, just below an offer for a free DVD of the 2004 Ryder Cup and the heartbreaking news that Carrie and Brian were on the rocks. I don't know who that could mean either, and I'm looking at their pictures. The headline read, Armed Terror Cops in Swoop on Gang, 
Dirty Bomb foiled by News of the World. And the lead said, The News of the World has smashed a suspected terrorist plot to explode a dirty bomb on the streets of Britain. In a joint operation with Scotland Yard, our reporter infiltrated a gang trying to buy radioactive material for a mystery Saudi Arabian feared to be linked to Al-Qaeda. If you can put aside the hacky tabloid writing style, smash that terrorist plot news of the world, there was what appeared to be a very important story here. The three men were each charged with two counts, conspiring to fund terrorism and conspiring to possess an article for terrorist purposes. They were remanded to jail while they awaited trial, which took nearly two years and several million pounds to prepare. But when the matter finally came to trial, it became clear that nothing about the story was what it seemed. Not the events, not the defendants, not Mahmoud, and especially not the radioactive material. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Red Mercury, Part 1. While the news of the world had been confident and unequivocal, when the matter finally reached the bench, it immediately began to fall apart. In the wake of 9-11, a lot of governments got real and, understandably, twitchy about possible acts of terror, particularly the American and British governments, who each took, uh, shall we say, creative license in how they sought and prosecuted cases. There were elaborate sting operations, wherein one undercover agent would approach a suspect and convince them to help him broker arms from another undercover agent to sell to a third undercover agent. There were no arms, no sellers, no buyers, and the arrestee would never have sought to do anything without the intervention of the government. Still, a lot of these cases got prosecuted, and a lot of those prosecutions got convictions. At first glance, the news of the world story looks like one of these cases. The three men were not your ordinary terrorist sympathizers. The one who first allegedly approached Mr. B was 45-year-old Dominic Martins, a banker for Coots Bank in London. He had been brought into the supposed plot by Roque Fernandez, a 44-year-old security guard at the bank. Fernandez, in turn, answered to a 53-year-old Somali national named Abdurrahman Kanyari, whom News of the World described as the gang leader. But what Kanyari really was was an eccentric entrepreneur who was always trying to stick his thumb in one or another get-rich-quick pies. He'd previously attempted to sell Somali licenses to Romanian fishermen, powdered milk to Mozambique, and had even tried to establish a market for Polish caviar in Central Africa. They were weird, and not necessarily entirely above-board schemes, but a far cry from nuking London. According to Kanyari, 
he wasn't trying to nuke London. What he was trying to do, he said, was make a bunch of money. His understanding, again as he told it, was that red mercury, the super secret ingredient which authorities claimed was for building bombs, had a different purpose. That purpose is a bit convoluted and has to do with another super secret material that probably doesn't exist, black dollars. According to Kanyari, black dollars were old American banknotes that had been disguised as plain bits of black paper. But when dipped in red mercury, the black dissolved, leaving behind huge quantities of money. It is for the American military in Africa, he told Jivan Vasagar for The Guardian. Whatever quantity they need, they wash it and they use it. When there is a civil war and they get out of the country, there are dollars in Somalia and in Liberia, and everyone is looking for the chemicals. I had 10 to 15 of them. They were completely black and had to be washed. As a bonus, Kanyare told Vasagar, the red mercury that cleaned these black dollars was also an effective substitute for Viagra. Of course, Kanyari was looking at a lengthy prison sentence, so we can't just take his word at face value here. But there are some good reasons to believe he was telling the truth. The story, as reported in the news of the world, is a little weird. Who was this Mr. B, and how did he find Mazer Mahmoud? If he had, in fact, initially approached the cops, why hadn't they listened to him? Was he just a concerned citizen, or were his motives a little more suspect? See, even by British tabloid standards, hell, even by Rupert Murdoch standards, News of the World was absolute trash. That sounds like editorializing, and yes, I guess it is, but if you were ever going to make a factual claim about a newspaper deserving to line birdcages, News of the World would be the case. Don't take my word for it, just listen to Peter Osborne, then chief political correspondent at the Daily Telegraph. It is perfectly clear that the news of the world, as owned and managed by Rupert Murdoch, was a criminal organization. The Sunday tabloid was hated by celebrities, politicians, even the royal, for its relentless pursuit of sensational stories. Remember the Duchess of York caught trying to sell access to Prince Andrew? Soccer star David Beckham's secret affair. Stories that made it hugely popular with readers and hugely profitable for Murdoch. Murdoch ended up shutting down News of the World in the wake of a hacking scandal you probably recall and the arrests of several people, including the paper's former editor. That all changed this week with revelations that the paper illegally hacked the voicemails of 4,000 people. The hacking scandal, however, wasn't the first time News of the World had gotten into hot water. And several times that water had been heated by none other than the fake sheik himself, Mazer Mahmoud. In fact, it is hard to pinpoint the moment suspicions about Mahmoud first arose because even in his so-called successful stings, there were constant allegations of impropriety. Those actors, athletes, and politicians he caught selling drugs, for instance, all told worryingly consistent stories of being pressured, cajoled, and basically entrapped by Mahmoud and his associates. The most alarming sign that something wasn't right, though, came in 2003 with what was at that point the biggest story in Mahmoud's career. Victoria Beckham, seen here leaving her home with her husband, 
is said to be in shock over the plan to knock her unconscious with a chemical spray and kidnap her and their two sons, Brooklyn, aged three, and Romeo, two months. Armed officers arrested seven men and two women after a tip-off from the Murdoch-owned News of the World, whose reporters infiltrated a gang of Romanians and Albanians. Mazer Mahmood had infiltrated a gang of criminals and personally saved Posh Spice from kidnapping or even death. He was a national hero. Several weeks ago, uh, the News of the World's investigation team, led by Mazer Mahmood, who's our investigations editor, better known as the fake shake, I think, um, was, they were working on a, uh, on a crime story based around the theft of some, some fairly expensive artwork from Sotheby's. Uh, in the course of that investigation, they infiltrated a, a gang of uh, East European criminals uh, and it came to light that in fact this gang had a much more serious plan uh, in their minds and that was the kidnap of Victoria Beckham and if her two sons were with her at the time, her, her two sons also. Um, Mazza um, stayed with this investigation, infiltrated the gang even further to the point where he basically became a gang member and was able to uh, bring uh, this fairly dangerous situation to a happy end for the Beckhams until the Victoria Beckham kidnapping case went to trial, that is. The key witness for the prosecution was the person who had brought the story to Mahmood, a 27-year-old parking attendant named Florum Gashi. Gashi raised a lot of eyebrows. He claimed that one of the defendants had purchased a very special and non-existent Italian knockout gas. He claimed to have met with members of the alleged gang when they could prove they were not in the country. The gang members themselves were, like in the Red Mercury case, unlikely suspects. One of them was a practicing doctor. Additionally, Gashi had previously brought a few other stories to Mahmood, including one about a ring of drug-dealing traffic wardens. Mahmood had published the story and the traffic wardens had been arrested, but the charges were later thrown out when the prosecution determined the whole thing had been made up. Making things up is what Gashi did. He'd even been convicted of just that some years before. His motive was simple. Mahmood and the News of the World paid him for every story he brought them. He had received 10,000 pounds for the Beckham kidnapping plot, with the promise of a bonus if the accused were convicted. With all of that new information uncovered, as well as documentary evidence which showed it was Gashi, not the defendants, who had repeatedly suggested the crime, the Crown Prosecution Service had dropped the case. One of the accused, Bogdan Maris, eventually won a libel suit against News of the World. At the Red Mercury trial, the defense brought in testimony from Florum Gashi, who said he had invented stories at the behest of Mahmoud and worked with him to run up innocent people in order to sell newspapers. He called Mahmoud serially corrupt. It was all looking very bad for the prosecution. But their biggest difficulty wasn't to do with Mahmoud's credibility or the overall implausibility of the crime. The biggest hurdle was that nobody could say what Red Mercury, the thing Cunare, Fernandez, and Martins were supposedly trying to purchase, was, or if it even existed at all.
In his opening statement to the jury, Crown Prosecutor Mark Ellison told them, The Crown's position is that whether red mercury does or does not exist is irrelevant. He advised them not to get, quote, hung up on the nature, or lack thereof, of the material. But I am going to advise the exact opposite course for us, because I've spent the last couple of weeks researching red mercury, and it is one of the most fascinating and confusing things I've ever looked into. So let's you and I get extremely hung up on the existence of red mercury, shall we? Right after this. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. If you've ever spilled mercury before, say by breaking a thermometer, then you know just how difficult it is to collect it all in one place and make it go where you need it to. Tracking the history of red mercury provides the same problems. We can basically divide our investigation of red mercury into three questions. What is it? Where did it come from? And does it actually exist? But depending on whom you ask, Red mercury could be any of a dozen different things, and its origins are just as confusing. The question of red mercury's existence is, by contrast, comfortingly binary, and the two camps couldn't be more different. Essentially, everyone arguing publicly for the existence of red mercury today is either a con artist, a conspiracy theorist, a loon, or some combination of the three. Meanwhile, any source you might find on Red Mercury written by anyone with even a single corpuscle of credibility will tell you unequivocally that there is no such thing 
and that whatever its supposed origins or characteristics, they are invented. A myth, an urban legend, or even a hoax created by one or another group interested in duping people. Our old pal Brian Dunning, for instance, made an episode of his podcast Skeptoid about Red Mercury back in 2020, in which he asserts pretty confidently that Red Mercury is just an urban legend. The Wikipedia page for Red Mercury opens by describing it as, quote, a discredited substance, most likely a hoax perpetrated by con artists. Normally, if I knew the subject of an episode of this show was going to be fraudulent, I would try to hide that fact for a big reveal in the end. But not this time. Because unlike Brian and Wikipedia and every other sober non-lunatic writing about it, I think that there is a real chance that Red Mercury is real. But, true to impish form, I'm going to hold that back for later. So. Let's go back to the believers. Interest in Red Mercury seems to have had roughly two peaks. The first began in the late 80s and lasted through the 90s, tapering off before the news of the world broke the story that three men were trying to buy it. Those early iterations of the story are all over the map, but generally the purpose of Red Mercury was seen as something to do with nuclear weapons, and its origin involved in some way, shape, or form the Soviet Union. The second peak occurred just a few years ago, mainly on YouTube and social media. But when Red Mercury was reborn in the mid-2010s, it was very different than the first go-around. The old ideas didn't disappear, but the new ones were so overwhelmingly weird that they tended to drown out everything else. In viral videos and Instagram posts, Red Mercury was shown as a metallic red liquid which was supposed to have magical powers. Usually it was described as a panacea, a universal medicine or else, as Abdurrahman Kanyare had said, a way to improve male virility. But it's also said to be a way to summon jinns, or genies as the anglicization goes, that can grant wishes or cast powerful spells. In a matter of months after COVID-19 broke out, scammers were promising Red Mercury would cure that. In these cases, Red Mercury is usually supposed to be found in the throats of Egyptian mummies or else it can be discovered in the nests of vampire bats. One YouTube video that amassed hundreds of thousands of views sought to prove its legitimacy by showing the red mercury being repelled by garlic and not appearing in a mirror. Whether it comes from bats or mummies, this origin story is said to be ancient, a belief that's existed among Arab Muslims for over a thousand years, but I can't find any signs of it predating 2019. Where these ideas actually came from, and whether they're connected to the nuclear weapon version of Red Mercury, seems impossible to determine. What's abundantly evident is that these newer versions of the Red Mercury story are all straight-up con jobs. Most of the pictures and videos are crudely constructed CG images, and nearly all of them feature phone numbers to call or email addresses to write for prospective buyers. 
While the posts themselves are very entertaining and worth seeking out, I cannot stress enough that you should not contact these people. Let's leave the subject of the newer, vampiric Red Mercury there, because while it's engrossingly silly, it's ultimately just a garden variety scam in a very large garden. It didn't really warrant much of a takedown even in 2020 when the subject was somewhat hot. It's just people making things up on YouTube to bilk gullible viewers out of money. It probably never worked, and if it ever did, what's there to say about it? The versions of Red Mercury where it's a Soviet weapon component, though, got a lot more traction and did a lot more damage. And, like I said, there is some perishingly small but tantalizing reason to think there could be something to them. While the specific supposed forms and uses of this Red Mercury vary considerably, Pretty much everyone, whether they believe in its existence or not, give a similar origin story. While I can't find any direct evidence of the phrase Red Mercury before the mid-1980s, there's agreement that it actually goes back to the mid or late 70s, or at least that those talking about it in the mid-80s thought it did. It's in that time period that Red Mercury is said to have been invented or discovered by Soviet nuclear scientists. There's also a moderate consensus that initially, red mercury didn't have to be red, or contain mercury for that matter. Instead, red mercury might have just been a cool code name. Most of the time, however, red mercury is described as being both red and containing mercury, or at least one of the two. Its purpose is even more confusing, and a lot of the time that part is kept intentionally vague. If you had to pinpoint a moment when the story of Red Mercury burst into the open, it would be 1992, when a 40-year-old Russian scientist by the name of Oleg Sadikov convinced Boris Yeltsin to give him a license to produce, sell, and export the stuff. In both the Russian and European press, this announcement was greeted with a flurry of wild conjecture. The Russian newspaper Pravda claimed any airplane painted with red mercury became an untrackable stealth bomber. The Independent in Britain cited an unnamed nuclear expert who said it could be used to build a nuclear bomb the size and weight of a watermelon. Others said it was a component in next-gen missile guidance systems or even the basis of a hypnotic perfume. Mainly, though, red mercury was understood to have something to do with the production of nuclear weapons. But even when you get to that level of specificity, there's still plenty of room for what part it played and in what kind of nuclear weapons. There are, essentially, five theories. The easiest to understand is the one that says red mercury can be used to enrich uranium. When you mine uranium, what you get is a mixture of two different isotopes, U-235 and U-238. U-235 is the one that's useful for fueling nuclear reactors or nuclear weapons, but in nature, 99% of the stuff that exists is U-238. In order to get a usable product, the raw uranium has to be enriched. The process for doing this is slow, expensive, complicated, and maybe most importantly, conspicuous. For bomb-making purposes, you need highly enriched uranium that is more than 85% U-235. 
To get that, you need a bunch of stuff. Most critically, a large heated centrifuge. It takes a lot of resources to build these zip centrifuges, and a lot of expertise, too. And in the modern world, it is nearly impossible to get one without somebody noticing. The conspicuousness of these centrifuges is one of the key aspects of modern nuclear deterrence. Iran, for instance, has been interested in procuring a nuclear arsenal for decades now, but surveillance from the United States, Israel, and other governments has stymied their development, because any time they've managed to construct a centrifuge, it has been detected and then either blown up by Israeli airstrikes or bricked by hackers. So, if red mercury eliminated the need for these centrifuges, it would be a very big deal. Any government in the world who could get their hands on the stuff could build their own nuclear weapons, and so could any number of non-governmental organizations with sufficient means, like terrorists. Fortunately, there is basically zero chance that red mercury can do that. The reason it is so hard to produce highly enriched uranium isn't just that such a large portion of naturally occurring uranium is U-238, it's that aside from the difference in usefulness, the two isotopes are in every other respect virtually identical. In most ways, they exhibit the same chemical properties, and that suggests that there is no simple chemical process for separating them. It's clear, however, that the thin hope of red mercury providing a workaround for the centrifuge problem has been very attractive to numerous governments over the years. When the United States invaded Iraq in 1990, American forces found a couple of filing cabinets full of conjecture about red mercury. But there is another, even more alarming theory for why rogue states and non-state actors might want to get their hands on red mercury. And it is, arguably the reason this story won't go away. An interesting paradox about red mercury is that one person is largely responsible both for the proliferation of conspiracy theories about it and for the dismissals of those same conspiracy theories. His name was Samuel T. Cohen, and he was, without competition, the loudest voice on Red Mercury, at least outside of Russia. Not only was his voice loud, it also carried, because Samuel T. Cohen wasn't some crackpot selling vampire crystals on YouTube. He was one of the most important and prominent nuclear scientists of the 20th century. He got his start as a member of the Manhattan Project in 1944, working at Los Alamos on neutron absorption in Fat Man, the bomb dropped over Nagasaki. After the war, he went to work for the Rand Corporation, where he mainly spent his time devising low-yield, low-fallout, or clean nuclear weapons, which came to be referred to as neutron bombs. For reasons too complicated to go into here, the neutron bomb never really caught on as a part of nuclear strategy. Cohen claimed that the Reagan administration built more than a thousand weapons of his design. Nuclear weapons being highly secretive, that claim is hard to adjudicate. But regardless, Cohen's place as a top-tier expert on nuclear weaponry is unquestionable. It's also unquestionable that his views were sometimes controversial and sometimes just plain wild. During the Vietnam War, he advocated for the use of neutron bombs on the Viet Cong. During the Cold War, he advocated for neutron bombs to be deployed
deployed along the Soviet border to attack Russian tanks. And even more disturbing, in 1984, he wrote a story for Reason in which he suggested that Israel should bury nuclear reactors all around its borders to create a zone of radioactive death that would painfully murder anyone who tried to pass through it. He was also a supporter of Reform Party candidate and theocratic racist Pat Buchanan, so that's fun. Regardless of all that, Cohen was unquestionably among the foremost experts on nuclear technology in the world. So when he came out in support of the existence of red mercury in the mid-90s, people took notice. For red mercury believers, Cohen's backing is the ultimate sign that they are right. But for skeptics, his specific claims about its nature are some of the best evidence that red mercury is fake. Because Cohen didn't just say red mercury existed, he also said he knew what it was. According to him, red mercury was an extremely potent balotechnic. Balotechnics are a class of materials that very efficiently transform pressure into heat. They're not quite the same thing as explosives because they don't, well, explode. Instead, when you subject them to intense shock waves, they react by almost instantly expelling huge amounts of heat. In Red Mercury's case, according to Cohen, the amount of heat is so great that it can trigger a fusion reaction. Very basic primer here. There are essentially two kinds of nuclear bombs, just as there are essentially two kinds of nuclear reactions, fission and fusion. Fission weapons, like Fat Man, use highly radioactive materials, like uranium-235, to create massive explosions. But fusion weapons can use more common materials, like hydrogen, to create blasts that dwarf even those. But in order to create a chain fusion reaction out of hydrogen, you need a lot of heat. So much heat that conventionally, the only way to build a fusion weapon is to also build a fission weapon. You need an old fashioned atomic bomb to trigger your new fangled hydrogen payload. Or you do, unless you can get your hands on some red mercury, according to Cohen. Cohen said that red mercury allowed for the construction of pure fusion devices. If that were true, it would be much more serious even than the uranium enrichment possibility. Not only would it eliminate the need for centrifuges, it would eliminate the need for... Uh, pretty much everything. Virtually anyone could build a nuclear bomb with little expertise and no surveillable footprint. And there would be no stopping it. Because while the international community can do a pretty good job regulating the circulation and enrichment of uranium, there is no conceivable way to restrict people from getting their hands on hydrogen. It is the most abundant element in the universe. It's even worse than that. There are lower limits to how small you can build an atomic bomb. Not only are the mechanisms complicated, but you need a certain amount of fissile material, usually uranium or plutonium, in order to achieve the reaction. 
That amount is called the critical mass. And while you can fudge it a bit through various means, which we will get back to, there are hard limits that just can't be superseded. But there is no such thing as a critical mass when it comes to fusion devices. So if you strip out the need for the fission part, you can build a bomb as small as you like. And because it's working off of fusion, it can still be extremely powerful. Cohen wrote that he had sources indicating that the Soviets had built a pure fusion device the size of a baseball. And even though it weighed just 10 pounds, it could easily take out an entire neighborhood. If all this were true, it would destabilize the entire world. Hell, it might end the entire world. Luckily for everyone, it is not. If you enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away? Or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never, ever existed? Or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder? Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. I'm not going to pretend to understand the math here, but I can tell you that everyone who does understand the math says that a Balotechnic primary for a fusion device is physically impossible. Even if red mercury were perfect, if it converted every last bit of pressure into heat with 100% efficiency, which is also impossible, the amount of energy released would still fall short of what's necessary by several orders of magnitude. What's really odd about this is that while the math is way beyond my ken, it would hardly serve as a Monday Sudoku for Samuel T. Cohen. It's difficult to see how the inescapable conclusion escaped him, which has led some people, including Brian Dunning, to wonder if Cohen was on the level. After all, the consensus around Red Mercury, from the kooks and the non-kooks, is that somebody is lying. And the consensus from the non-kooks is that red mercury isn't real.
By that standard, at least, Mazar Mahmood, the fake sheik, was no kook. On the witness stand, he admitted that he thought Red Mercury was a scam and had been hesitant to move forward on the sting. What seems to have gotten him past those doubts was that it would make a very good front page story. While he would not identify the source that brought him that story, the nefariously pseudonymed Mr. B, he did also admit under oath that News of the World had hired a number of convicted criminals to work on the sting. Quote, since they were less likely to arouse suspicions among those being investigated or infiltrated. At the same time, browser histories showed that the defendants were so clueless as to what Red Mercury was that they had been asking Google about it. To sum things up, three men were on trial for attempting to buy Red Mercury. The buyers did not know what Red Mercury was, the seller did not believe Red Mercury existed, and the only criminals among the whole bunch were working for the reporter who was working with the police. I am happy to be able to tell you that all three men were acquitted. I'm maybe even happier to tell you that after the trial of the Red Mercury 3 and the alleged Posh Spice kidnappers, Scotland Yard opened a new investigation to look into Mazer Mahmood. I'm very much less happy to tell you that they concluded they would continue to work with him. And that indeed, they did. Mazer Mahmood kept on doing his thing for years. In 2006, he tried to get an MP named George Galloway, who currently leads the Workers' Party of Britain, to make anti-Semitic comments on tape. Galloway would not. He figured out that this fake sheik was the fake sheik and took the matter up with Parliament and the Metropolitan Police. When he attempted to circulate photos of Mahmood to other members of Parliament, News of the World took him to court to quash them. They lost. So you could say News of the World and Mahmood got a bit banged up over the years. In the background, Scotland Yard had started looking into the possibility that News of the World was hacking people's voicemails shortly after the Red Mercury verdict. Indeed, they were. At first, investigators thought the paper had only been spying on celebrities, politicians, and the royal family, which would have been bad enough. But in July of 2011, it came out that they had also been hacking the phones of regular private citizens. They'd hacked the voicemails of family members of British soldiers who had died in Afghanistan. They'd hacked the voicemails of people who had died in the July 7, 2005 London bombings. Worst of all, they had hacked into the voicemail of Millie Dowler. Millie Dowler was a 13-year-old girl from Surrey who disappeared on her way home from school on March 21, 2002. Six months later, her body was discovered by mushroom hunters. Eventually, it was determined she had been murdered by Levi Belfield, who had gone on to kill two other girls and attempted to kill a fourth. Millie Dollar's story is heartbreaking, and not just for the obvious reasons, either. The tragedy of the girl's death was compounded over and over by awful circumstances. In the early days, when she was still missing, police had been tunnel-visioned by a theory that her father was responsible, and later had to publicly apologize for wasting resources on him when Millie might otherwise have been found. At the eventual trial of Belfield, his defense argued that Millie had been depressed and disturbed and possibly committed suicide and the family's private lives were splayed out across tabloid covers, like the news of the world. 
Man, the fucking news of the world. They'd hacked into Millie Dollar's voicemail back before her body had been discovered. In the weeks that 13-year-old Millie Dowler was missing and her loved ones were desperately waiting for news, a private detective working for the News of the World hacked into her mobile phone and listened to her voicemails. Uh, simply one of the police officers that I w uh, was working with was one of our FLOs dropped, dropped me up the station. I met Bob and then we just basically quietly retraced her steps and no one was really around so it was very much like the day she'd actually gone missing and we put out um, missing leaflets with her photograph and a telephone number on and that number had been changed and I was checking the the posters to see if the number if, if the if the right poster was up and as I walked along I was sort of touching the posters and we walked back to our house which is maybe three quarters of a mile something like that and that was on the Thursday. And then on the Sunday, that photograph appeared in the news of the world. And I can remember seeing it and I was really cross because uh, we didn't see anyone. They'd, they'd obviously taken the picture with some sort of telephoto lens. How on earth did they know? We were doing that walk on that day and it just felt like such an intrusion into a really, really private not only did that give false hope to her family and lead investigators in the wrong direction, but when Millie's voicemail box had gotten full, reporters at News of the World had deleted messages to make more room for new ones so that they could hack into those. First of all, you tell us that you were, you were phoning in to Millie's voicemail. Yes. Uh, quite regularly, presumably, yeah. to see whether there was um, anything else there. Yeah. Oh, of course, all the time we were. At first, we were able to leave messages, and then her voicemail became full. Yes. And then you rang, and then you just got the recorded. Um, we are unable to right. leave messages at the moment. And this was gone. So I was used to hearing that, and um, we'd gone up to the Bird's Eye Building to um, look at the CCTV, and we were sitting downstairs in reception, and I rang her phone. Yes and it clicked through onto her voicemail, so I heard her voice. Yes. And I was, it, it was just like I jumped, she's, she's picked up her voicemails, Bob, she's alive! And I was just, it, it was then, really. Police never got to hear what was on those deleted messages. If there'd been any clues among them to solve or even prevent Millie's murder, they had been lost. Well, we got a call from our FLO to say that um, the Met Police wanted to see us yes and to tell us vaguely what it was about mm -hmm. and as soon as i was told it was about phone hacking um literally i didn't sleep for about three nights because you're replaying everything in your mind and just thinking oh that makes sense now that makes sense yeah, uh, yeah. invading the privacy of actors and royals was one thing this was quite another in the wake of the Millie Dollar voicemail revelations, Rupert Murdoch's empire quaked. He was forced to step down as chairman of News Corp when comments of his came out supporting the hackers. His son, James Murdoch, left the vice chair. Executives from all over Murdoch's news ops lost their jobs. A few even ended up in prison. And finally, after a large-scale ad boycott, the News of the World, one of the oldest newspapers on earth, closed up shop. In their final issue, July 10th, 2011, 
they praised the fantastic reporting of their own fake sheik, Mazar Mahmud. Mahmud might have kept things up even after his paper was shuttered for an immense criminal conspiracy. Except that Mahmud was about to get caught up in his own immense criminal conspiracy just a year later. By then, Mahmud was working for The Sun, a tabloid just as shabby but not technically criminal, at least as far as we know. Along with Metropolitan Police, he'd planned a sting operation against British celebrity Taliza. I personally had never heard of Taliza before, and I suspect that's probably true for a lot of the non-Brits listening, so the Cliff's Notes version is that Taliza was one-third of an early 2010s English hip-hop group called N-Dubs. Who were uh, pretty bad in a lot of directions simultaneously. Critics seem to agree that this track, Playing With Fire, is their least bad song, given that it won a MOBO in 2010. The MOBOs are a British award ceremony standing for Music of Black Origin. In case you couldn't tell just by listening, Taliza and the two other members of N-Dubs, known as Dappy and Phaser with a Z, are deafeningly white. But that is neither here nor there. When Taliza crossed paths with Maz Mahmood in 2014, she had moved on from N-Dubs and was a judge on X Factor. Hey, I know what that is! You remind me of my mum. <laughs> it's pretty good. She had such a beautiful voice, and she didn't do anything with it. And you know, guys are going to think I'm nuts. Sorry, this is a mummy and daughter thing going on. Um, it's just you know, like standing in the kitchen listening to her sing. She has the most amazing voice. And um, I wish she would do something like this and get up and. Um, Without the terrible backing track, that would be a really touching moment. The point is that Taliza, even if her music is not to my liking, seems like a good person. And not somebody who deserved to get caught up with Mazar Mahmood. 
For this sting, Mahmood posed as a Bollywood producer who promised to Lisa he could get her into the movies. He was interested, he said, in seeing her for a role opposite Leonardo DiCaprio. But only if she could score him a mountain of cocaine first. Mmm, that is good journalism. And bang up police work, too. They arrested Talisa on June 4th, 2013 on suspicion of supplying Class A drugs. The case against her fell apart even harder than the Red Mercury trial. It turns out that Mahmood's driver, Alan Smith, had given a statement to police saying that he had overheard Talisa talking about how she hated hard drugs and refused to touch them because someone close to her, I'm looking at you, Dappy, was an addict. After talking to Mahmood, Smith changed his statement, striking out the anti-drug stuff. When questioned under oath as to whether Mahmood had told Smith to redact the conversation from his statement, Mahmood said he had not. But Smith admitted that he had. The judge immediately dropped the case and new charges were filed against Mazer Mahmood and Alan Smith for perverting the course of justice. That trial unveiled a career's worth of entrapment, setups, deceptions, and perjuries. A half-hour-long episode of the BBC News doc series Panorama went in-depth, exposing Mahmood even further. This is a man who doesn't want you to see his face. Mazza Mahmood went to court to stop Panorama showing you pictures like this. I'll give you a shout. That's gone a job now. I'll give you a shout. Posing as a fake sheikh, the News of the World reporter delighted in exposing the secrets of the rich and famous. Dozens of people were sent to jail following his undercover stings. I've never killed anyone, but it feels like I've served a life sentence. Now Mazza Mahmood stands accused of being a liar. Mazza Mahmood was Pinocchio on speed. It was so easy for him to fit anybody up. The King of the Sting destroyed lives, leaving a trail of victims in his wake. This would never have happened unless they created the situation. They made it happen. But we can reveal police and prosecutors have evidenced for years Mazuma Mood's word should not have been relied upon. He was found guilty in October of 2016 and sentenced to 15 months in prison. There was talk of his victims filing a class action suit against him, but if that happened, I can't find any word of it. I hope they do. Luckily for Roque Fernandez, Abdurrahman Kanyari, and Dominic Martins, they had managed to avoid the fate that so many others had fallen into. Largely because everyone, from the defense to the prosecution to Mazar Mahmoud himself, agreed that the thing that they were accused of attempting to buy didn't exist. The same is true for every governmental, non-governmental, and extra-governmental organization who's ever looked into Red Mercury. All of them have publicly concluded that Red Mercury, the miracle material that makes softball-sized nukes, stealth planes, guided missiles, vampire-based medicine, and whatever else you might want from it, does not and never did exist. But after digging into it for a couple of weeks, I am not so sure. I think there's a real, if slim, possibility that everybody else 
from the Department of Energy to the Moscow Academy of Sciences to the International Atomic Energy Agency and so many more are wrong. And I mean, who are you going to believe? Because last time I checked, the IAEA doesn't have a podcast. Okay, fine, sure, but at least I'll make a good story out of it. And that is next time on Red Mercury Part 2. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to everybody who helps make this show possible, especially two patrons I am singling out, Catherine Musica and Nikki Wolf, the man behind two of my favorite podcasts of recent years, Finding Q and The Sound. I just recently finished The Sound, and boy, it is very, very good. You should go check it out. But anyway, if you would like to support the making of this show, you can navigate over to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. I can't promise it'll help you produce my favorite podcast of the year, but it couldn't hurt. And hey, at least you'll get early access to new episodes, ad-free, and monthly bonus content to boot. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the Mirage Tavern, possibly the greatest sting in journalism history, and one I ought to do an episode about, come to think of it, so let's not spoil it here in the outro. This has been The Constant. <laughs>